The table audio is made possible by the generous support of the John Templeton Foundation and the Templeton Religion Trust. How can you know flourishing mm -hmm. if you don't understand loss? Mm -hmm. How can you know liberation if, if you don't understand what, it, what it's like to have your freedom taken away? So I, I think that is the hermeneutic, hermeneutical entry point for black people of faith. The yeah. role that suffering says it, that something has to be gotten from it or snatched from it. I'm Evan Rosa, and you're listening to The Table Audio, a podcast about seeking Christian wisdom for life's big questions. I imagine that for as long as people have suffered, they've asked why God would allow it. And I can also imagine that for about as long, people have tried to solve the problem of evil with some version of an appeal to the value of freedom for meaning in life, that freedom leaving open the possibility of evil, or the justifiability of suffering in light of how suffering can, quote, make your soul, the soul-making theodicy, improve your character. Theodicy is an attempt at rational justification for God's permission of evil, vindicating God, you might say. Can suffering be redemptive? That's a dangerous question. Do you see why it's a dangerous question? Well, just one reason is that for some people, for some of your neighbors, their reality is so characterized and expressive of sorrow and pain that to suggest that their reality of suffering somehow makes them more virtuous, more pure, more sanctified, more free, that sounds like betrayal, rebellion. It sounds like the kind of betrayal that Ivan Karamazov was referring to when he responded to God's permission of horrifying evils with, quote, returning the ticket. In one of the most famous passages of the Brothers Karamazov, Fyodor Dostoevsky has Ivan say, I want to forgive. I want to embrace. I don't want more suffering. And if the sufferings of children go to swell the sum of sufferings which was necessary to pay for truth, then I protest that the truth is not worth such a price. I don't want harmony. From love for humanity, I don't want it. I would rather be left with the unavenged suffering. I would rather remain with my unavenged suffering and unsatisfied indignation, even if I were wrong. Besides, too high a price is asked for harmony. It's beyond our means to pay so much to enter on it. And so I hasten to give back my entrance ticket. And if I'm an honest man, I am bound to give it back as soon as possible. And that I am doing. It's not God that I don't accept, Alyosha. Only I most respectfully return him the ticket. That's rebellion, murmured Alyosha, looking down. Rebellion? I'm sorry you call it that, said Ivan earnestly. One can hardly live in rebellion, and I want to live. Tell me yourself. I challenge you. The answer. Imagine that you are creating a fabric of human destiny with the object of making men happy in the end, giving them peace and rest at last, but that it was essential and inevitable to torture to death only one tiny creature. That baby beating its breast with its fist, for instance. And to found that edifice on its unavenged tears. Would you consent to be the architect on those conditions? Tell me. And tell the truth. No, I wouldn't consent, said Alyosha softly. Ivan goes on to recite his infamous poem, as he calls it, The Grand Inquisitor. That's your homework, though. For now, what then can we say about suffering? Some are made worse, but some are made better. Made resilient, given the fractured state of society. The church very much included. Along racial and ethnic lines, we need to seek a deeper understanding of the question of redemptive suffering. That's why I invited Stacy and Juan Floyd Thomas to do an interview. Stacy is Associate Professor of Ethics and Society, and Juan is Associate Professor of African-American Religious History, both at Vanderbilt University Divinity School and College of Arts and Sciences. They both joined us in 2017 for the Table Conference on Resilience, Growing Stronger Through Struggle. Stacy's research and teaching interests lie at the intersection of ethics, feminism, womanism, black church studies, critical race theory, and postcolonial studies. 
Juan's work focuses on the intersections of racial identity, religion, popular culture, and political activism in American society. Along the way, we cover problems of consumerism, pop culture, how we can cure the loss of cultural memory, and a deeper dive into black and womanist perspectives on flourishing, suffering, and theodicy. As I sat down with these two scholars, this married couple, Stacy the ethicist and Juan the historian, I had this image of each of them back to back, both equally concerned with looking backward to history and looking forward in ethics. I loved hearing them work together, collaborating even in conversation, to make some important and lasting points about contemporary society. And we started in on an unlikely topic, although not that unlikely given the breadth of this podcast. Quilting. You quilt? I try. <laughs> she she excels. She excels. She she truly it does. Is. But it's fun. It's, mm-hmm. it, it's fun. It's, my it's, mom has that. It's become a part of my really mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Well, I actually quilted in order to reclaim some of my nana's, my maternal grandmother's um, expertise and mm-hmm. mastery. It was actually part of a Wabash program oh. on for mid career faculty, where the thought was. If there was ever an art form that you yearned to do or you were learning to do, yeah. how might it restart your vocation yeah. as a teacher, as yeah. a theologian, yeah. as a minister? And so it, it, it helped me in the way of cultural memory mm-hmm. to yes. be able to link back to my grandmother and something that she did as in order to cultivate a sanctuary of her own, mm-hmm. yeah. um, where all 14 of her children thought it was just about poverty and distraction and mm-hmm. and utility and while it was for utility it was also for beauty mm-hmm. and going through learning an historical art form mm-hmm. from a very modernistic approach of using expensive machines and expensive yeah. material in order yeah. to, to do it helped me approach how to teach predominantly privileged students mm-hmm. the moral wisdom of black women in particular. Yeah. So it allowed me to realize what might be missing in the gap that that um, that yearning that can yet be fulfilled. And so it created a little discipline for me to do that. And how cool is, I mean, like that, even the metaphor of like a quilt and what mm-hmm. it represents oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. of bringing these pieces together mm-hmm. and weaving something that is this beauty. It's, it's both beautiful, mm-hmm. it's comforting. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, so it has many, utility to there's it. There's utility, yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's, and so, but it, there, so there's genuine like provision there, mm-hmm. right? I'm like, mm-hmm. you are like warming, mm-hmm. warming a body. Yeah, yeah. But you're, that's beautiful. And, and that, that's what we've realized in our work that mm-hmm. it's at those places mm-hmm. that are life affirming, yeah. that mm-hmm. spark cultural memory, yeah. and that transcend people out of what might be a miserable or, or mundane stage mm-hmm. to something that is larger than them, to something that gives them life. And we realize that in a Talikian sense, mm-hmm. body and sex, politics, sports, all of those things become people's ultimate concerns because it reaches them mm-hmm. and it takes them places that they otherwise can't go. Yes. And that's the way in which we say in the text that people, instead of serving God, have found uh, meaning in gods that service them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they've made temples rather than use as touchstones mm-hmm. these actual popular phenomena. The interiority of the soul, mm-hmm. when it when it strives for mere ownership, when mm-hmm. it strives for the concept of property, mm-hmm. when it strives for like just consuming the world yeah, yeah. as opposed to participating and connecting. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the way in which civil religion or American exceptionalism used theologian Kelly Brown Douglas's term, mm-hmm. the way in which it has supplanted biblical religion yeah. or other religious freedoms, it has made America God. And if we mm-hmm. go back yeah. to yeah. Schoolhouse Rock, <laughs> <laughs> where we learned about government and bills and preamble and yeah, Declaration yeah, of Independence, right. you know, when it, we think about the Declaration of Independence, that's a, a touchstone that most mm-hmm. Americans and citizens remember, mm-hmm. you know, that we have the inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you flip that mm-hmm. and you look at the 14th Amendment, mm-hmm which states that citizenship is an inalienable right of life, liberty, and property. Yeah. How property, right, mm-hmm. is synonymous then mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the pursuit of happiness. Yes. So consumption is our worship. Yeah. 
Consumption is our spiritual discipline as Americans. And it doesn't matter whether that is a supersized McDonald's Happy Meal that will kill us and not make us happy. I mean, think about it. Calling, mm-hmm. you know, calling you know, fast food Happy Meals for children. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Oh. Um, indoctrinating them early. Indoctrinating yeah. them. Or, or, or saying that in some way I will be supersized, right? Supersize <laughs> me, right? That, that uh-huh. there's all of this coded language yeah. in anything that we can consume. Women, I mean, stereotypically talking about retail therapy. Mm-hmm. But also, yes. but right? also attached to this whole notion of a consumptive mentality that then leads us all astray and I, I take this back to when Stacey was referring to her quilting as, as an act of and an art of recovery, right? What we were finding, especially when we were dealing with our students or, or just in more general interactions with folks around us, right? Folks are hurtling from one thing to the next thing and never taking a moment to pause or to regroup and recalibrate and, and reflect, remember, yeah. you know, um, what came before. So... You know, so for us to then, you know, take a, you know, take this opportunity to pause in in a book like this and say, we need to look back at, well, how did we get to this scenario, to this situation where folks, you know, in the recent debut of the latest iPhone, for instance, right? Now, there are folks who, because they've been wired now, they've been literally programmed as, as uh, folks to say, oh, well, there's a new iPhone. So even though the device I have, yeah. you know, it meant the world to me when I got it, but now it's it's obsolete. It's even though because yeah. the device is no longer about its utility, mm-hmm. it's but about it, its symbolism, right? Its status, right? Sure. But it's also that you know, I, and I wrestle with this. You know, Augustine is someone I, I, I um, hearken back to on numerous occasions, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, when Augustine talks about you know, for instance, um, the notion that there's a God-sized hole in, in each and every one of us, yeah. right, waiting to be filled, uh-huh, right? Well, that 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 notion that. Until you find that missing piece, that missing part of yourself, okay, a lot of stuff, you know, since nature abhors a vacuum, a lot of stuff finds its way into that 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 place. Oftentimes, you know, fleeting, ephemeral stuff that, you know, so the next latest and greatest yeah. gadget or, you know, experiences, good, bad, and, and you know, everything in between, you know, retail therapy or, or what have yeah. you, and folks trying to find that, that missing part. And then when they come to the realization that yes, it is the divine that I was I was seeking all along, yeah. then hopefully that they hadn't done so much damage to themselves and those around them until they, they made that kind of awakening, that kind and of And it's because of the divine is no longer mm-hmm. Articulate it in mm-hmm. a way that it's even relevant. Many well, people sure. are still property driven, even mm-hmm. if property means people. Right. Right. And by that, I'm not just talking about chattel slavery from from American history Mm -hmm. or human trafficking that happens now, Mm -hmm. but the way in which marriage Mm -hmm. becomes property. Well, sure. Right? For for women who say, well, I want to enter marriage just to have a man legitimate me. Mm -hmm. Right? Not because I love him, Mm -hmm. but because of what he can afford for me or because this is what my parents want Mm -hmm. or this means that I am a desirable woman or men to say, Mm -hmm. Listen, I'm supposed to have a six-figure job. I'm supposed to be able to buy Mm -hmm. an impressive engagement ring. That's three months of my salary. I need to have a car that every man could covet. And with Mm -hmm. that comes a trophy wife that every other man wants to have that will prove that I'm the man. To to find yourself in a situation that your standard of what it means to be successful, of what it means to be a human who flourishes at every extent, Mm -hmm. is to covet what you assume other people want. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And to take ownership of that, losing yourself all the while. There's this kind of core of desire and that desire is misdirected toward the, you know, toward like, really it's based, based around kind of false sense of, Mm -hmm. of what will fulfill. Absolutely. Well, and once again, going back to, uh, um, Augustine, just for, for a second, dalliant is, um, you know, when Augustine talks about sin and this, this, you know, always gets me to the quick. He talks about it in terms of disordered loves, right? Yeah. So this idea that somehow those things that we love, right, in in a way that's not a healthy love, not a, 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 a agape affirming kind of love, but the idea that, you know, folks who who say that, you know, 
you know, they seek promiscuity because they've given up on on genuine love and commitment, yeah. right? They they seek violence because they really want to feel um, safe, right? Right. So they'll they'll give themselves over to their worst instincts and inclinations, mm-hmm. rather than say, no, there is something better here, yeah. and you you have to hold out and hold on for the that better thing, rather than just give in to the rat race and, and, you know, the yeah. chase for, um, you know, materialism rather than contentment and, and personal satisfaction. And the, yeah, I mean, he doesn't, doesn't Augustine in the confessions talk about being in love with loving, right? Yeah, right. like yeah. just, just the kind of empty, mm-hmm. just the, just the fact of desire, which is mm-hmm. it kind of gets you into the cycle right. of, um, of like, uh, consume, and like destroy, it's cheap reconsume. Yeah, it's yeah, cheap, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, mm-hmm. I was thinking about like kind of the the virtues of this kind of world that you're describing. Right, mm-hmm. the virtues of this world are are not the reflection or the remembering or the embodiment mm-hmm. or the human connection. Yeah, yeah. It's speed, mm-hmm. novelty, mm-hmm. control, mm-hmm. Lust. Everything's disposable. Lust. Yeah. Disposability, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Move on to the next one. It's it's ultimately going to kind of yeah. foster that sense of. I mean, it's going to. It's perfectly American. Mm-hmm. Perfectly in its, American. In its kind of uh, root of individualism and autonomy, yeah. and where vice becomes virtue. I just wrote a piece for um, this. Well, I was interviewed for this magazine called Quilt Folk, and in 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 that magazine, real quilt. Real quilt. I quilt love folk. quilt. I love and, quilt art. This is amazing. See, he's trying to pit me for no, no, free no, 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 because he knows I would do that for him. Wait, 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 what? You you have I'm a access? quilter. No, you're a quilter. So, yeah, and so it was very Whoa. difficult. That that was one of the the hardest <laughs> confessions for me to make was to call myself an artist. And I, I'm the granddaughter of a master quilter um, in the area of G's Bend. Um, my nana wow. was um, a fabulous quilter. And to know, and of course, the quilters of her generation were discovered, right, as great artists. Mm-hmm. Um, when all they were trying to do was to create sanctuaries for themselves, to make whole cloth out of scraps, uh, to bring beauty into share crop shotgun houses and to give warmth to their children. And my grandmother had 14 children, 12 who were girls. My mother was the oldest of all of them. Um, They're all living and 35 grandchildren and even more great grands. And they all hated quilting. Because it reminded them of poverty. It reminded them of the way in which she would steal away to do that. You know, 14 kids who are, are used to having her always at their beck and call. And it was a thing that separated her, much in the same way women use kitchens as secret sororities when they didn't have college educations. Um, and... It was only until I became a professor and got a Wabash grant for the artists um, as theologian for mid-career faculty um, where we were told to find an art that we were interested in or were curious about. So we might be able to empathize with our students who are entering into discourses uh, that they never knew, like the the gentleman back there said, you know, I'm in this room full of scholars and I don't do this. I'm just trying to live, right? So we might be able to identify with our students and we might be able to refine our expertise by learning something new. So I stitch in the ditch with machines in the way my grandmother did it by hand and it has ignited for me a sense of cultural memory that I now possess even though she is gone. And my grandmother died of um, co- um, complications with Alzheimer's. And when she, pa- when, when she was in her latter stages of Alzheimer's, she didn't know her children's names. Uh, she forgot, you know, even some bodily functions, obviously. But two things she recalled. She recognized her quilts. 
and she would say that there's a baby somewhere that wants me to teach her how to make things. Um, so art, and I think it does go to your question of what the work of a Christian social ethicist might be. Art is about that utopia. It's, it's about that new world making. It's about taking refuse and, and making something divine, using utility for the purpose of making stained glass where there aren't even windows, right? I realize that what upset my aunts and uncles and my cousins about my Nana's quilting was art allowed her to create a sanctuary for herself when she was otherwise laid open to their desires. So there's a way in which, for me, the work of ethics is much like art. It cannot start with a divine will deontology that says, you know, deal with it as it is. And that whatever your experience is, how God ordained it. No, I think it's more of King's rational, intuitional deontology that says we can look at this thing that says it's this and make something new out of it, right? Where we have to reformat that, that, that Platonic and Aristotelian notions of forms to function for us in ways that might otherwise never have been imagined. And that is to tap on the God within us. That is to realize that God is not some removed entity, but Emmanuel. God with us, an Imago Dei, God through us. And art is a wonderful spiritual practice for us as theologians because that's what we're doing in our literary and biblical imagination as we dare hand over to people the word of God morning by morning and Sunday by Sunday, right? Toni Morrison puts it this way. She said, it is, a, it is a sin and a travesty. This is her book, Sula. To have, a, for a woman to exist with no art form. Because when people do not have art, they become dangerous. In other words, if we're not constructing something, we're always destroying something. <laughs> he wants a quilt. Stay tuned. After the break, we jump into that thorny terrain of theodicy and the problem of redemptive suffering through the lens of black experience. Stay with us. Hello, friends. Thanks for giving us a place at your table. It's a gift for us to bring these conversations into your life, and we hope you find them meaningful and memorable. Throughout season three of the podcast, we'll be offering a brand new online course. It's free to all of our email newsletter subscribers and free to sign up. It's called Charting a Course Through Grief, and it's all about providing much-needed perspectives on dealing with the pain of loss. This stuff isn't easy to talk about, but we need to. Not far beneath the shiny facade of the smiley, how you doing, I'm fine version of American happiness. We all know that darkness, that loneliness, and the real pain that's there. This course doesn't take the place of counseling, therapy, or healing of loving encounters with God, friends, and family. But there are words, beautiful words, and ideas and stories that provide for us companions for our journeys of grief. And it's right in line with our goal to continue to seek Christian wisdom for life's biggest questions. So we've curated an email-based course that brings a weekly variety of perspectives on depression, disability, disease, and death. Bringing Christian resources for healing and growth within and through and despite these painful events of life. We're developing new content, dusting off old content, as well as providing helpful resources and references for continued education and exploration. Charting a course through grief is totally free. So head over to cct.biola.edu slash grief and sign up today. We don't see eye to eye on everything, but all of us will someday encounter deep personal suffering. So here's an opportunity for us to learn 
pray, meditate, and open up to the opportunities for growth in the face of suffering. Check out the link in description in the show notes or head over to our website to sign up. Again, that's cct.biola.edu slash grief. And of course, thanks for listening to The Table Audio. Now back to our conversation. In this world of consumption, where there's you know so much popular culture to be consumed, there's there's and this is not to come down too hard on pop culture. Oh no, some amazing we all, we art all coming out. All as opposed to unpopular culture, <laughs> unpopular. I'm sure somewhere there's that unpopular culture we won't talk about. <laughs> okay, all right, so okay. True. But like amidst all of this, mm-hmm. amidst all the consumption, all the feel, like we're just covering, we're using that mm-hmm. to cover up some serious mm-hmm. pain, yeah, some sure. serious vice, mm-hmm. some serious wrongs done to one another. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we've got these like running concurrently, mm-hmm. you know, so that in the same, in the same, uh, you know, swipe of the phone, mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're traversing oppression, we're traversing hatred, mm-hmm. And then we're clicking the button to buy mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're liking and we're oh, following, sure. you know, yeah, yeah. let's get, let, let's get down to the level of our kind of broad sense of this is not the way things were meant to be. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about suffering at the level of like interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And specifically what I'd like to discuss is suffering at the level of race and just think through what new ways we have to talk about this in a way that is going to be more transformative than what we've what we've seen already what new imagination can be there mm-hmm. to re-envision a way forward that addresses the problem of flourishing in pop culture tech society in a society that is ultimately divided where can we start like what where do you guys like to start to frame this conversation let me put it this way um you know in uh um my wife's never-ending attempt to uh try to um you know uh turn a, a, a sow's ear into a silk purse. You know, she tries to get me cultured and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, you know, so gets me listening to, you know, musicals, takes me to shows and all this kind of stuff. And so in the classic uh, um, musical, uh, South Pacific, I don't really have much care for the the whole musical, <laughs> but there's this one song. It's a small, it's a short song, but it, I think it's powerful. It's called Carefully Taught. must be carefully taught. If you're to hate those that your people hate, you must be carefully taught. So what happens when you have a culture, you know, both in sacred and secular terms that fails to address, you know, these kind of critical concerns where folks are getting these lessons. They're learning who who's acceptable and who's not. Who's worthy of love and affection and attention and who's not. What the meaning of life is or is not. So who who are the valuable people and who are not? Absolutely. There you go. There you go. You've got to be carefully taught. And unfortunately, what we always have to reckon with is what happens when that human side of us is so much more inclined to the, the that point of negativity, yeah. that point of exclusion, sure. that point of, of tolerating misery and pain of others yes right now you know and that's the the kind of um thorny terrain of of the odyssey right right this idea that we maybe because of of um how we understand ourselves you know self first right to you know kind of charles taylor Mm. territory right we if we understand ourselves as self first oftentimes humans you know commiserate over why did why must the good suffer right but very i mean it's the question of Job. Right, of course. Yeah. I mean, the man from us, right? You know, he's always yeah. suffering, the right? The man from us. Right. <laughs> the man from us was. But but the but the problem then becomes, right, there's also, you know, when when the theologians and philosophers have wrestled with that, they there was also the B side of that, which is why do the bad or the wicked flourish, right? And, and I think right there is where we see the world of difference between black faith formation yes. as Christians and white faith formation. Yeah. So King makes this observation years ago that the most segregated hour of a given week is the 11 o'clock Sunday worship hour. And of course, the way it was pitched and the way it was discussed then had everything to do with segregation. Mm -hmm. 
But even in this supposed desegregated moment, Mm. that still holds true. Mm -hmm. And why does that hold true? Because we find out, though the name might be the same, Mm -hmm. black people and white people often worship different gods. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. For James Baldwin puts it this way. He says that the way in which white people come to the cross, they can take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. But black people come through Christianity because of the cross, Mm -hmm. through the cross. So... Where the odyssey in the typical Christian constructive theological moment is the end of faith for Mm -hmm. most. It's the beginning Mm -hmm. for black people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So suffering is not and it'd be clear suffering in and of itself is not a good Right. It it, it is not a good sometimes suffering is just plain, despicable, degrading and dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. But it's that response to it Mm -hmm. right that if you were to ask anyone to reflect on their life Mm -hmm. so regardless of privilege uh regardless of social location race gender Mm -hmm. they will they might quickly go through the checklist of this milestone Mm -hmm. this birthday this wedding blah 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 this Mm -hmm. child's birth Mm -hmm. but where they'll pause where they'll spend the majority of their time are around the moments that they've suffered Mm -hmm. and the way in which those times have shaped their formation. Mm -hmm. Some to the extent of saying, and that's why I left the church. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And that's what we see this present generation doing. Right. Because there's no meaning there. Mm -hmm. Others, you'll see that that's where they made a turn Mm -hmm. to really understand what faith is about, to really know what flourishing is about Mm -hmm. and really find their purpose. And that's the role that suffering has played that I think goes missing when people read. James Cone's mm-hmm. black, you know, liberation, theological renderings mm-hmm. of redemptive suffering. Not to say that there's anything good in and of itself, mm-hmm. but how can you know flourishing mm-hmm. if you don't understand loss? Mm-hmm. How can you know liberation if, if you don't understand what it's, what it's like to have your freedom taken away? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that is the hermeneutic hermeneutical entry point for black people of faith, the yes. role that suffering says it, that something has to be gotten from it mm-hmm. or snatched from it. Yeah. I wonder if you can help to think about these different angles of thinking about suffering, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the black entry point. Sure. It's the entry point for black faith. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could also, Stacey, kind of untie what the womanist entry point is with respect to suffering. And how can we distinguish that from a feminist perspective on suffering? How can we separate that from a white perspective on suffering? The womanist entry point of suffering is, it, it, M. Sean Copeland puts it this way, it's, she calls it wading through many sorrows. Mm-hmm. It's living not only at the intersections, to use Kimberly Crenshaw's critical race terminology, but it's living in the crosshairs of everything that America hates. It's to be, if we were to do a power analysis, it's to be on the underside based on your race. It's to be on the underside based on your gender. Yeah. It's to be on the underside base of your class. It's to be under the underside based on your sexuality, which is assumed to be part of an exotic, erotic, perverse, or used for surrogacy. Mm-hmm. It's to be on the underside of educational development. It's to be on the underside of what it means to be a person of faith. Patricia Bell Scott and some other black feminists put it this way. They said, to be a black woman is to live in a world where all the women are white and all the blacks are men. So the rest of us, to exist as black women, must be brave. More from the Floyd Thomases in just a moment. If you're looking for other ways to grow in wisdom, check out Biola Learn, Biola University's lifelong learning platform. There you'll find online courses from Biola faculty covering a variety of topics, everything from faith in the workplace to spiritual formation to finance to the art and science of relationships. Visit biola.edu learn to check out the growing course catalog and use the promo code TABLE15, that's T-A-B-L-E-1-5 at the checkout for 15% off your next course enrollment. 
Now, while we're at it, personally, I'd recommend you sign up for CCT's Biola Learn course, Seeking Christian Wisdom for Life's Big Questions. I mean, did you think it would be called something else? It features seven segments you can take at your own pace, each focusing on one of CCT's yearly research themes from the past seven years, each led by a Biola professor. We've got J.P. Moreland, Elizabeth Hall, Tim Muehlhoff, Tom Crisp, Steve Porter, Kent Dunnington, and even Biola's president, Dr. Barry Corey. The course covers neuroscience and the existence of the soul, Christianity's radical approach to humility and love, how to disagree and remain civil, and more. Learn Christian wisdom online at your own pace through Biola Learn. Once again, that's biola.edu slash learn. And make sure to cash in with the promo code TABLE15 for 15% off. Now back to the show. What is the feeling for a black woman when you hear that? Like, where is the space for you? To be resilient. <laughs> Absolutely to be resilient. When we, when we look at the, the Sojourner Truths, uh, the Harriet Tubmans, the Shirley Chisholm's, the Anna Julia Coopers, the Joy Reeds <laughs> I mean, of the world, people who, the Oprah, even the Oprah Winfrey's of the world, people who have been pushed to the margins, Many, I mean, what, if we're talking about Oprah Winfrey or Maya Angelou's, women yeah. who've been raped in modern times, uh. um, in a country and in a context where women cannot, black women cannot be rapable, right? <sighs> black women can't be raped. Black women are unrapable. I mean, it's hard not to, like, I mean, for that to be true, it's hard not to just directly connect that to the origins of slavery. and. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, oh, I mean. absolutely. We now see with the spate of unarmed killings. That when we count the bodies, the bodies that we count are black men's bodies. When we talk about the prison industrial complex, we're talking about black men. Now, to be truthful, of course, the actual numbers, right, are black men for the most part. But when we're looking at the the rise in percentage of the people who are dying of AIDS the fastest, the people who are being incarcerated at the fastest rate, and the people who are getting college degrees at the fastest rate mm. are black women. Right? I'm, and that goes missing. That goes missing not only in the American public, but that goes mi- missing in those black subaltern counterpublics as well. Yeah. The black church <clears throat> is a black women's movement, the only black women's movement that's ran by black men. <laughs> right? The, the, in many ways, the black church exists off of the suffering of black women because there's this notion of black women, oftentimes single mothers, mm-hmm. who are yes. giving their all to the church. So I, I, I keep thinking of Shaniqua Walker Barnes and the, the, the strong black woman. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, that, that kind of suffering becomes a virtue for black women Holy. by which black women are kept subjugated and oppressed. So, and this is, this is, this is like the kind of space, the tension that I, I, I I really, I'm I'm glad we got here because I mean, this is, this is where they're, where to call suffering redemptive Mm -hmm. is where we need to just take that a second look. Right. Mm -hmm. And because if there is any redemptive nature to suffering, it has been wielded for evil in so many ways. Mm -hmm. It has been wielded for oppression and injustice. Mm -hmm. It has been wielded for exploitation. Mm -hmm. What I want to do is like, what can we do to identify and move beyond the kind of, you know, the use of redemptive suffering Mm -hmm. that can, that can stand in the place of uh, that, that can be utilized for oppression and move to the kind of redemptive suffering that is genuinely for a kind of human personal unitive and connective good. Well, I think one of the issues that your statement hearkens in me, Evan, is this idea that sometimes, unfortunately, when we explain exploitation, that in and of itself is exploitative. So oftentimes what happens when folks who have been perpetually marginalized, alienated, oppressed, you know, victimized in, in a great many ways, right? As as Stacey was mentioning in terms of the multiple oppressions that, that Black women have to confront, you know, both within the Black community and, and beyond the Black community, right? And then to constantly have to reach out, 
either to folks who should know better, right, in terms of black men or, or, or you know, members of the community that they're a part of, and then also then explain to the larger society, you know, why aren't you listening to us or why don't you see what's going on with us, right? That, that you know, that's adding insult to injury, so to speak. But we demanded of folks who are going through their marginal and oppressed status because otherwise those folks who don't have to deal with with this on a daily basis, we can operate in a kind of, you know, blithe ignorance, right? We can just be blissfully, you know, bopping along, right? Much like, um, you know, uh, Stacey and I, we were talking about just today with recent um, hurricanes and earthquakes that have befallen, right? And so many of the places that have been stricken, you know, especially throughout the Caribbean and now in Mexico, right? These are, you know, places that most Americans only think of as vacation hotspots, right? Right. We don't. We so well, you don't think about the other side of the island, right? Or, right. Or, or like you know, we think about them in terms of vacations, but not in terms of evacuations, evacuations. Uh. right? So, like, so what happens when you turn a blind eye to the needs and the miseries of others, but then? make matters worse, you make them have to relive over and over and over again that that source of, of deepest pain or most awful and miserable state of being. Yeah. But there has to be a, but the conversation has to begin. So, yeah. and I think that's part of the paradox. What can we learn from, even in the articulation of it, right? Mm -hmm. When we say that we want to learn from Black suffering, mm -hmm. we're already going in a direction of, of trying right. to... A victimizing. Victimizing right. and mm -hmm. exploiting mm -hmm. that. So, so now we're going to make you go through suffering and we're going to learn from it. So mm -hmm. thanks again. Mm -hmm. So no, I mean, but, 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 it would be better pitch. What can we learn from Black people mm -hmm. who have suffered at the hands? Mm -hmm. Yes of all of America's mistakes. See, it, it, it is how you how you frame it. The framing is important, so that's where like, I, I want to well, be sensitive even to well, that. Like, well, I could go yeah. uh, full circle back to uh, the image of Dylan Roof and, and the Emanuel AME shooting, church shooting, because what astonished me was when, not just that the fact that many of the, the family members of, of the fallen came forward and, and said, we forgive you. We, we despise what you did, but we forgave you. And then the nation as a whole was mystified yes. by, by the idea of, yes. okay, these are folks who are deeply and fervently Christian, and they're extending a, a level of Christian forgiveness and mercy to someone who had done this horrible and heinous act, right? They were showing an open the, enemy. I mean, even in the wake, it's just well, yeah. that he's he remains an open enemy. So it's this kind of right. radical yeah, there's enemy. No, there's no atonement, no repentance coming from no. him, right? No. Even to this day, but still, we are challenged. We are called out of the depth of our being to extend forgiveness. But as a society, many Americans right couldn't process this. And then when you you notice yeah. that. When, you know, when threats of, of terrorism or what have you happen to the nation as a whole, the nation responds not with forgiveness, not with mercy, but with threats of violence, yeah. fire and fury, That's you know, right. things of that uh -huh. sort. And so total destruction. So, yeah. So when just as a, a, a sample group, as an example, when when black people are asked or expected to extend forgiveness, kindness against, you know, forces of, of evil and, and oppression, but then the nation as a whole is not even challenged or, or convinced that, you know, diplomacy or decency, right, civility is an appropriate response to things that we find unsuitable or unacceptable. Harriet Tubman put it this way. She said that when people were saying, I can't believe you made that many trips. Mm -hmm. I can't believe you saved that many people. And she said, I saved thousands. She said, but I could have saved so many more if they knew that they were actually slaves. Mm -hmm. So Barack Obama said it on his race speech that he gave in Philadelphia years ago. And we see that King did it in 1963 with his March on Washington. Black people have been able to, through their suffering, mm -hmm. because of their suffering, mm -hmm. and seeing, seeing the backside and the underside mm -hmm. of America, they've been able to clearly articulate the reality of our times, mm -hmm. yet show us the promise of our ideals. Mm -hmm. And in our society, we've never dealt with that liminal space. Mm -hmm. What does it mean to name wrongs and strive for ideals? Mm -hmm. And that's what suffering is. Mm -hmm. 
Suffering is that conscience-laden place mm -hmm. of knowing the wickedness and depravity that you are presently facing, yet having a realistic hope, not that the ark will just miraculously bend towards mm -hmm. justice, mm -hmm. but if I don't bend it, mm -hmm. or like Bree Newsom, if I don't climb that pole mm -hmm. to take down that flag, who will? Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's looking at those who have suffered the most, not as property, not as people without virtue or character or people without value. Not but as problems. Or problems. Sure. Mm -hmm. But looking at them as moral exemplars yeah. who can best diagnose our deficiencies. Yeah. And, and, and the concept of the exemplar is they're, they're when we talk about like, Bearing witness, mm. bearing but witness. those, but those exemplars are the witnesses. Yeah. They are the witnesses. They're the ones bearing witness. They're the ones with the the bravery to get on the stand, mm. so to speak. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But even even within our tradition, within within the faith, right? That notion of how you play with the notion of witness, right? Sure. So the idea that both the passive and the active nature of it, right? That right. I've seen something and now I have to go back and tell what, what I saw, what, you know, give, give some testimony or whatever. But then even what we're suggesting here is the idea that the poet uh, Langston Hughes said that folks would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon, right? Yeah. If we don't exemplify quite literally what we believe and how deeply we believe these things to be true, right? Who will ever understand or, or know what the capacity for, for human transformation really is in this world, right. right? So that's why in so many ways over the centuries, right, whether it was the movement out from slavery to freedom, from segregation to greater justice and equality, to even now what we're going through as a people and a nation, mm -hmm. right, the idea that nobody should have to go through this in order to reach the destination, to reach that ultimate goal that we all should have started from in the beginning. But the idea that now by demonstrating, sometimes literally, sometimes figuratively, what it means to seek that which you deserve or demand which that which is right and do you, sometimes the only way to get to something is to go through something. And what I find fascinating now, even as we were talking about all our children being relatively of the same age, yeah. is I wanted a much better world for our daughter. I know that. And I'm sure, you know, you and anyone who loves her kids yeah. wanted a better world for them than what they see. But I also thank God for the struggle, right? Because if they understand and, and really lay ownership, once again, in, in a positive way, lay claim and ownership to the fact that God, God made us just for a time such as this. And we've got to now seek after what God wants for this world. But the greatest sin, and I think that, that we've realized it, is mm -hmm. when there, there aren't those who are willing to bear witness. Mm -hmm. When you live in a society where mm -hmm. people are censored, silenced, or mm -hmm. where the news is called alternative facts, mm -hmm. and there aren't people who have the audacity or the courage to speak truth to power, yes. or in the words of my grandmother, to tell the truth and shame the devil, mm -hmm. then people cannot <laughs> imagine an alternative vision of justice. Yeah. And what they believe justice is, mm -hmm. is just what exists. Yeah, yeah. Just what they see. Mm -hmm. And so our conversations about yes, faith, well. about suffering, about mm -hmm. regret, they have to be intergenerational. Mm -hmm. As we ascribe to American human flourishing, mm -hmm. African Americans are just as guilty as white people on mm -hmm. this. You don't want your children to know mm -hmm. that you were the first college graduate mm -hmm. or that as a parent, you never even completed high school. Mm -hmm. You you want what your money can buy to also buy the ticket to cultural amnesia, mm -hmm. right. which is how African-Americans were underdeveloped to begin with. Right. The same thing with, with whites, mm -hmm. right? You, you don't want your children to know the history mm -hmm. of your family. Mm-hmm. Um, the way in which your fortune <laughs> was mm -hmm. built on the backs of yeah. enslavement oh, yeah. or the way in which your demise or, or, or your background mm -hmm. was tied to not being part of the planter class, but actually mm -hmm. poor whites who were working alongside indentured and enslaved mm -hmm. yeah. people of color. Yes, that's right. right. So if we don't have these intentional conversations, suffering will be for naught. Because it, it, we won't allow for the reality of our situation to help 
better inform the possibility of our futures. For many people, this conversation ends all too abruptly. Not nearly enough was said for the topic under consideration. For others, maybe it didn't end soon enough, if they listened at all. It's either too painful, too charged, or too uncomfortable. Wherever you find yourself after hearing these reflections, remember that we humans are complex, strange concoctions of reason, will, emotion, and desire. We come to these conversations with histories. We don't lose those complex histories when we make an effort to reason carefully. I'm reminded of Soren Kierkegaard's comment from either or. Quote, philosophy is perfectly right in saying that life must be understood backwards. But then one forgets the other clause, that it must be lived forwards. I find in Juan and Stacy Floyd Thomas an honest and sober hopefulness. Maintaining such a vision is difficult these days, so I'm thankful for their light, their laughter, and their wisdom. And I'd call us back to the image of the quilt and what you might call patchwork redemption to wrap things up here. Quilts are often made from scraps, the stuff you'd otherwise throw away. But these scraps are intentionally sewn together regardless of pattern, color, texture, and made into a tool for warmth and connection and protection. We're the scraps, damaged and beaten up, maybe with no felt sense of purpose, maybe thrown in the mix with other broken fragments and leftovers that look nothing like us. So, let's make a quilt. Thanks for listening. Audio is hosted and produced by me, Evan Rosa, and is a resource of the Biola University Center for Christian Thought, which is sponsored by generous grants from the John Templeton Foundation, Templeton Religion Trust, and the Blankenmeyer Foundation. Theme music is by The Brilliance. Production and engineering by the Narrativo Group. More info at narrativogroup.com. Edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Production assistance by Laura Crane. To subscribe, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what we're up to and you want to support us, you can do two things. Tell your friends and share this episode. Maybe listen together while you're cuddled under a quilt. Keep it appropriate, of course. And give us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. I'm not just saying that because it's on every other podcast. It really works. On Twitter, you can follow me at Evan Subrosa, and you can follow the Center for Christian Thought at Biola CCT, or visit our website, cct.biola.edu.